Today's scripture is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will also come. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, everybody. I'm Jim. It's good to see uh, you again. I think I was here a few weeks ago during another type of leadership retreat. Uh, it was one of the power outage Sundays, and it was, it was really fun. So it's nice to be back with electricity, even better. And welcome. A uh, quick blurb. The, the, the elders here, they asked me to spend uh, about... 30 minutes giving an infomercial for Liberty Collingswood, then about a five-minute sermon afterwards. So I'm, so I'm going to keep to that. Uh, just, a, just a brief note, uh, Liberty Collingswood is up and running. Uh, we're, well, kind of. We're, we're rocking and rolling and preparing to be up and running. Depends on how you define that. Uh, we have a, a great group of people um, that are praying and being missional in southern New Jersey. And we are going to have, if you'd like to come, we're opening up our house. We've had these periodic kind of party gatherings at our place. Uh, the next one will be the Thursday after Thanksgiving. We're calling it Beer, Brats, and Knots. So if you like beer, you can come. If you like brats, you can come. If, you, if you're a knot and you don't like either of those, you can still come. We're at the church planning phase, so the bottom line is... <laughs> Is you can come. So, so come on out to that. And we're looking to have uh, some monthly preview worship services, just to let you know for information and prayer, uh, starting on December 8th. I believe that's a Sunday, the second Sunday in December. And we'll have monthly preview services. We're building towards a launch on Easter Sunday, March 31st of this coming year. And Glenn McDowell said, said that it was okay for, for me to say this. This is G. McDowell at Liberty org if you have any uh, feedback for him about this. But, you know, why, why just pray for Liberty Collingswood when you can actually move to Collingswood and be a part of the work close up? So come on out and, and see firsthand uh, what it means to live in missional community in a small area. And I said this at Liberty East a couple of weeks ago. P- people say, why, why should you live in New Jersey? Why, why on earth would you want to go there? And my answer back is that, you know, there's no good reason uh, for, for, you, for you to move to, to New Jersey. Who, who needs a backyard, for example? Overrated. 
uh, who, especially in Collingswood, wants a comfortable walking downtown area with a ton of award-winning shops and restaurants at your backyard, in your backyard? Uh, who wants cheaper rent and cheaper housing, uh, price, price per square foot? And safe and quality public school systems are completely overrated. So, so please <laughs> rethink moving to Collingswood. And uh, I, I didn't ask Glenn if I could say this, but, but I don't want to sound too manipulative here, but, but I, like I told Liberty East, where would Jesus live? Think of, it, think, think of it that way. Think of it that way. And, uh, you know, would, would Jesus want to live here in Philadelphia, center of arts and culture, lots of awesome things going on all the time, maybe a chip on its shoulder when it thinks about New York? Or would Jesus want to live in the place that has a chip on its shoulder about not being the place that has a chip on its shoulder about another place? Jesus loves underdogs. And last thing in connection when I said this at Liberty East, uh, the feedback that I got from, from my wife Emily afterwards was, uh, uh, they thought you were kidding. Make sure that they know that you're serious. I'm only kidding if you're not serious about moving to Collingswood. But if you are serious about moving to Collingswood, uh, talk to me after the service and, and we'll, we'll have a party. And that's the, uh, that's the infomercial about that. Philippians chapter 2. Is a is a text that that was read. I I have a lot of conversations with people, and especially in church planting mode, uh, I talk and I talk and I talk and I talk. Uh, but really, for any pastor, and one of the here's how you can know if if your pastor doesn't really know a good question uh, to ask you and is just stalling for time. Uh, the pastor will say, "Tell me about your family." Just kidding. That's not a total stall tactic, uh, but it's a very common question. Uh, just kind of getting to know you. Tell me about your family and. I've asked that question hundreds, maybe thousands of times of people over the years. And rarely, if I ask somebody, tell me about your family, does the answer come back to me, well, I'm glad you asked because my family is awesome. My family is so unbelievably good. And it's a joy to be with them, whether it's my close family or my extended family. Let me tell you about how great it is. Rarely happens. Instead, tell me about your family very quickly goes into a lot of issues about a lot of different things. There's problems, there's dysfunction, there's just a lot of mess. I'm reading a book right now called Tree of Smoke. It's a, book, a, li- a literature book that, that was written a couple of years ago, and there's a quote uh, from the book that says, about the character's family, there had been brothers and sisters and plenty of cousins and many children. It was a loud, sad family. Isn't that a great line? It was a loud, sad family. And that's, that's many of our families. But it's not just our family. I think about lots of different communities of which we're a part. And it's like that across the board. We're a loud, sad family. In our work environments, in our communities there, in our school environments, uh, in our social environments and with our friends, even sometimes in our churches, it's a loud, sad family. Tell me about that. Tell me about your community over here. Well, and then it starts to add up with all the baggage again. We live in a loud and sad world. A loud and sad world. And we're broken people. It's kind of funny. We need community as people, but often that's exactly what we lack. And that's exactly what burns us 
or what we're burned out by, community. But still, the, the desire to be in and have community, it drives us in so many different ways. I'm, I know I'm not the uh, first person at a Liberty Church to quote C.S. Lewis, but I'll do it again. Right now, the uh, mid-20th century uh, scholar said, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods, and in many men's lives at all periods, between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be included and the terror of being left outside. The desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. What Lewis is saying there is that throughout history, we have the story, whether individually or culturally at larger levels, we want to be in. And we're terrified of being left out. In whatever community sphere you're in, you want to be in more. And just think for a moment in your own lives about how that desire to be in affects your thoughts, affects your actions, affects your jealousies, affects your desperations. We want to be in. But over our world of broken community, when everything is busted up, we have a kind Lord. A kind Lord who incidentally as our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is community through and through. Uh, the Christian doctrine of the Trinity says that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed before time and before anything was made in perfect, unbroken, abounding, joyous, internal communion and community altogether. And we, all of us made in the image of God, we reflect that communal aspect of who God is. God is community. We reflect God and want community for ourselves, but there's good news that in Jesus, God is bringing community back to our world. Back to our world. That relates to these verses here in the book of Philippians. There are some scholars that say the book of Philippians that St. Paul, an early Christian leader, wrote uh, to the church in Philippi, that Philippians is a friendship letter. Not friendship is in Hallmark Sappy friendship, but according to ancient canons of letter writing, there's a genre called friendship letters, and this letter of the Philippians, uniquely among all of Paul's letters, is one that conforms to this genre of Paul writing to friends. It's a very friendly, relational letter where Paul describes in different ways the life of the Philippian church and the wider church altogether. And so these verses, even at the end of Philippians chapter 2, points us to a new world of community. But the verses are also kind of weird. So I was, I was talking, I have uh, two older sons and two younger daughters. I was talking in the, uh, used to be a car, now it's the anger minivan that, that we drove here this morning. And I was trying to explain to the boys, uh, these, are, these are some weird verses. They, they have this kind of odds and endsy quality to them. There, there's a lot of great didactic passages in the book of Philippians. These verses here, they kind of seem like housekeeping, don't they? Here's Timothy, here's Epaphroditus. I'm going to send them to you. Now you know. How do you interpret? How do you imply this? The, for example, the first sermon series that I ever preached, Little Jimmy Anger, uh, over 10 years ago, I preached through the book of Philippians as, as my first sermon series, and I really had no idea what to do with this passage, so I skipped it because <laughs> I didn't know. But, but here's some poetic justice that, that we're back here, and like, I can see Paul like, looking down from heaven and saying, how do you like me now, Anger? Anyway, so it is kind of weird. What do, you, what do you do with this passage? Often, I think, in Christian interpretation, you look at Paul sending, telling the Philippians that he's going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus 
to the church in Philippi, you just take Timothy and Epaphroditus individually as examples of good Christian character. Be a Timothy. Be an Epaphroditus. And I think that's not, not really everything here. It's not the point. Paul is not writing what he's writing here to tell the Philippian church, be a Timothy. Be an Epaphroditus. Although that's probably good advice. Uh, the intent of what Paul is saying here really is just to let the church know what's going on. And what we have hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, is a window into the narrative of the community life of God's church between Paul in prison and Philippi. We have a window into the story of the ancient church and how it works together, a window into real Christian community. But it's not just Christian community. I've been in, church, in churches for a few years now, and if you're in the same kind of boat, this is not, if it's not your first time at a church service, it's, it's easy if you go after a while where you just kind of have Christian application boxes when, you're, when you listen to sermons or go to the awkwardness that is small groups. And those, Just kidding. They're awesome. Um, we're going to have them at Liberty Collingswood. And the, like, okay, this is a Christian advice that I know that I need to check off, uh, but it doesn't really get to the core of who we are. This is not just a window into Christian community here in Philippians chapter 2. This is a window into human community. It's a blueprint. It's a pattern. It projects out into our entire world. And this is for the world because God's intent from the very beginning was that the church of Jesus Christ be the new human community that God is building in his world to the glory of his own name. And the purpose of the scriptures from beginning to end is to mold a pilgrim people for mission and that they themselves would be light to the world and a preview people to say this is how it will be. In the new heavens and the new earth, when God comes and makes all things right again, this is, the, this is the foretaste, this is the trailer, this is the preview of what it's going to be then. We can see it now as it's worked out, as it breaks into our own time. So this window in Philippians chapter 2 is a window that, 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 that calls us as human beings, not only as Christians, but everybody. So if you come here as a Christian this morning... This call is for you. If you come here as a non-Christian this morning, this call here is for you. If you come here somewhere in between, you don't know, this call is for you. Everybody created in the image of God enter into this narrative of life together. But we see grace here. Because as we live in a community like this snapshot gives to us, this is a community that is fulfilling to us and restorative and healing to who we are. So, so I want to break it down in a couple of parts from here. What is community life uh, that we see between the Philippian church and Paul and his friends? It's communal over individualistic. The second one is it's relational over functional. And the third one, I'll explain this when we get to it, it's relative over ultimate. So communal over individualistic, relational over functional, relative over ultimate. Communal over individualistic here. In the verses, in the text, everybody is for the other. Everybody is for the other in some very striking, bracing ways. For example, very clearly here, Paul loves Timothy. But he sends Timothy to the Philippians. Paul's in prison. Not a fun place to be. Would have been nice to have one of his, one of his best buds close to him. But he sends him, thinking of what the Philippian church needs. And Timothy himself, Paul says in verse 20, cares deeply and is concerned, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So that's Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
As far as I know, the name Epaphroditus has not yet found its renaissance in Christian baby naming circles. <laughs> Maybe now. He, we call him Ditus for short. Epaphroditus. Think about it. Epaphroditus, also loved by Timothy, but sent. But sent and was very sick, we see in this passage, but is deeply loved by Paul. Indeed, verse 27, he, Epaphroditus, was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. There's such love and concern here, and it's reflected back from the Philippian church onto Epaphroditus. Verse 26, he has been longing for you all, Epaphroditus, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus, the really sick guy, who was sick for a long time, close to death, was really concerned that the Philippian church was concerned for him. Just think about all this care and all this concern. It's everywhere, it seems, in this church and in the network here. It's everywhere. And that that type of concern for the other is central to who Jesus is and why he was crucified and resurrected for us. There's an interesting parallelism, and I like to give uh, close readings of text, so, so bear with me as we do a little bit more here. Uh, parallel between verse 20 and verse 21 of Philippians chapter 2. For I have no one like him, Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy, genuinely concerned for your welfare. Then verse 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Timothy is not like Brand X. Because he is genuinely concerned for your welfare because he's in line with those concerns of Jesus Christ. The parallelism there is that the concerns of Christ, the interests of Jesus, are that we radically be for the other. And you could go so far as to say that's the point of the cross. That's why Jesus died, to gather people Back again. You see that the good news and the good work of Jesus, it fits our nature and it fits our need. We are broken in our practice of community. We are a loud, sad family and loud, sad families. But Jesus, who saw that we all are out and want to be in, he went out for us. He went out for us. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 13, towards the end of that letter, so Jesus suffered also outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus went outside and died and suffered God's wrath to bring us in. And if you know Jesus, he knows you by name and loves you and delights in you. And that invitation is open to all of us. And if that's true, Jesus delights in you. At one point in the gospel narratives, Jesus says, I'm not going to call you servants anymore because servants don't know what the master is doing. I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I'm going to call you friends. Think about that. Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, through whom all things were made and nothing apart from him occurs apart from that In that word of Jesus, this God of the universe, Jesus calls you friend. He calls you friend. Or again in the book of Hebrews, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, 
saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me, the Lord Jesus, crucified and and resurrected, living and reigning in heaven now, looks to his heavenly Father and says, Dad, look at this people. Aren't they wonderful? Dad, look at my brothers. Look at my sisters. Look at this community that you commissioned me and called me to go form. That's what God is doing in our world. And that is an absolutely crucial need for our age. I think at all times, in places, but especially now, community is really hard to do. And we often feel alone. Over 20 years ago now, a Harvard sociologist, for example, Robert Putman, Putnam, the fact that the Putmans are in church makes me rethink every PUT name. Robert Putman, a sociologist at a at Harvard, wrote a book uh, and did this big project over 20 years ago now, Bowling Alone. That was the name of the project. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. it and I think people, it's, it's been well-received. And he uses that image in Bowling Alone to say, this is where we are as a culture. In previous generations, I don't know if, if any of you still bowl, but in previous generations, apparently, bowling was a communal activity when you'd go with, with your friends to, to the bowling alley. But, but he wrote in the 90s, and how much more today, I don't know if specifically about bowling, but as a metaphor, people go to the bowling alley alone. In solitude, roll the ball, knock the pins, the ball comes back, they do it again, and they go home. That's where we are as a culture. Or you may have seen the cover, I think it was the cover story of the Atlantic magazine in May. Is Facebook making us lonely? And the answer was yes. It had a striking cover of, of a nude man and woman with the, and they're embracing, but the guy has a smartphone and he's actually looking at the smartphone in the midst of this embrace. And this is what the article says. I think it's a very perceptive article. Yet within this world of instant and absolute communication, unbounded by limits of time or space, We suffer from unprecedented alienation. We have never been more detached from one another or lonelier. In a world consumed by ever more novel modes of socializing, we have less and less actual society. We live in an accelerating contradiction. The more connected we become, the lonelier we are. We we were promised a a global village. Instead, we inhabit the drab cul-de-sacs and endless freeways of a vast suburb of information. And this article is chock full of statistics that says there's an epidemic of of loneliness clinically in our world. And that's just where we are. And it had some great stuff specifically about about Facebook and how Facebook can make us egotistical, narcissistic creatures. I I was going to include that, but then I went on Facebook on Friday afternoon uh, to, to give a status update to pimp this sermon and my blog. So I got rid of the Facebook quote so that I could in good conscience uh, post what I did on Facebook. But we're lonely. And there's actually a tension, I think, within the American experiment that can make us lonely. A, a country founded on principles of, of, of freedom and rugged individualism. How does that work when, when we're a society of people all with absolute rights over the other? Last quote from the Atlantic article. doesn't talk about Facebook here. Today, The one common feature in American secular culture is its celebration of self that breaks away from the constrictions of the family and the state and in its greatest expressions from all limits entirely. The great American poem is... Anybody want to guess? Song of Myself. 
Walt Whitman. The great American essay is Emerson's self-reliance. The great American novel is, want to guess? Moby Dick. Did you read the article? Okay, Jeff. (laughs) Is Moby Dick, the tale of a man on a quest so lonely that it is incomprehensible to those around him. American culture, both high and low, is about self-expression and personal authenticity. Franklin Delano Roosevelt called individualism the great watchword of American life. And I think we would want to say, as, as a modern culture and progressive people, yeah, that's great that, that, that we have all of these rights and that we have all of these freedoms. But what does it do to community? The flip side of that is that it can make us very, very lonely. But Paul in Philippians 2 projects to us a different world where community works again. Where community works again. Can you even imagine a world like that? Think about your church. Think about your workplace. Think about where you study. Think about your your social circles. Places where community actually is really, really, really awesome and satisfying and joy-giving because it's not about the individual. It's about the community and treating others more highly than ourselves. Isn't that a world that we want to live in? And this also is the call to us to practice costly community. It comes at a cost. Paul sends Epaphroditus and Timothy for the sake of community. And there's this travel aspect. Travel in in the ancient world, very dicey, but they're traveling to sacrifice and be with others. And all of the anxieties that we see in this text and, and the sorrows and sacrificial giving, which is alluded to at the very end of the passage, practicing community is costly, but it's good. And I think God hovers over our world and calls us to resist to resist the the selfish individualism of our age. Don't buy the lie. And practice community when it hurts. It came uh, came home to me in a practical way on on Monday. Uh, There was a storm at the beginning of the week. And I I have my my little email list of of Liberty Collingswood uh, people, and some of you here are are on the list. So, So at some point, like John and Laura, Sunday or Monday morning, I, I sent out to the group and said, okay, uh, storm's coming. This is a great time uh, to be for our neighbors and to practice community and find ways to serve. A very, very bold, compelling call that I sent out to everybody. But then it started to rain. And, you know, it was windy and it was raining and it was cold. And Emily and I had talked about having a hurricane party. I'm from New Orleans. We know all about hurricanes and therefore hurricane parties. Throwing a hurricane party impromptu for a block. And it was raining and it was windy and it was stormy and it was cold. I didn't want to do it. And it was my, my saintly wife, Emily, that said, you know, we should, we should probably do something. So, so, I, so I braved it with my umbrella and knocked on doors of neighbors uh, and said, okay, we need to do this. But, but, but that selfish impulse was there. Jim. You know, on a test, should you practice community? Yes. Would it be a good thing to have people over in the midst of the storm and meet some neighbors uh, with whom you would have no opportunity perhaps beside this to bang on their door and say, hey, we don't really know each other, but come over to my house. Jim, should you do that? Yes or no? Yes. But there was such a, a selfish impulse in me that just wanted to hunker down and watch Netflix under a blanket because the selfishness is real. That God calls us to practice costly community. And this works against, I think when I was here, 
uh, last month during the power outage, uh, I, I said that, that, that we do friendship affinity more than any other kind, where, where we want to be friends with people that are, are, by and large, at the same age and same stage as us, uh, with the same likes and dislikes as us, uh, who know the same cultural references as we do, who go to the parties that I already really want to go to. Uh, that, that's just who we are as modern people in a lot of ways. But, but, but if we look around at our community and it's all affinity-based or mostly affinity-based, can we really say that our community is other-focused? Does that make sense? If all of our friends and all of our social circles really just reflect who we already are and who we want to be, are we practicing costly community or not? And think specifically about how to practice community over individualism. How can you do that more as a church community, as a church family, or wherever you are, and with whom? And you might be sitting here saying, I'm really isolated. I show up at, which Liberty am I at? Liberty Fairmount. I show up at Liberty Fairmount. I don't know anybody here. I don't know why I'm here. Well, maybe God's calling you to be a builder of community. To take your experience of not finding community and have compassion on those also that may be experiencing the same thing and build. With whom? Or on your block? Or in your work? Or globally? And this is part of Christian witness. Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you are mine by the love that you have for one another. Together across cultures, across borders like we see here in this text. To do it. And as, if, if, if we don't. We're failing not just a couple of commands of Jesus, although they're really big, but if we don't really have community here as a church, it's, it's an ethical failure based on, the, on Scripture and also a, a failure of mission. Because this is one of the main ways in which we show the world that Jesus really is different. Here is a new world of peace, of shalom, of looking out for the other, and it's really, really good. Come join us. But when we do that and value community over the individual, then we're treating people as people. Let's think about how we see in this passage, and this is a little more subtle, uh, Paul values the relational over the functional. This really digs into the heart of community here. There are lots of jobs and functions in these verses. They're all over the place. There's sending, there's receiving, there's reporting, there's supporting. And, and Paul says he uses a market term of Timothy at the beginning of verse 22. Timothy has worth. And describing Epaphroditus, Paul says, he's, he's my fellow worker, soldier, messenger, minister, all functions. But Paul, who ostensibly is the leader of, of this band of Christians, he's not a functionalist. Uh, the, these are his lieutenants that do things for him. But it's not about the function. He calls Timothy, at the end of verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with the father he has served me in the gospel. They have a lot of tasks together. But Paul says, Timothy's like a son to me. He's like a son to me. Or in verse 27 again, with Epaphroditus, God had mercy on not only Epaphroditus to bring him out of his sickness, he had mercy on me because I, was ex- I would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow because I love him. And before Paul calls Epaphroditus worker, soldier, minister, messenger, He says, he's my brother. He's my brother in verse 25. The relationships are more important than the functions that we do for one another. And we treat people as people then. And again, this is not the story of our world. How often do I talk to marriages that are in distress? 
And commonly, the husband and wife say, I, I feel like I'm a co-worker with my spouse. We, we have these different functions. We have things that need to get done, whether it's with kids or not with kids or jobs or making money or doing different things. We, we're good partners, but we're not lovers. We're treating each other functionally. Or with, with, with friends. Uh, the function of you as my friend is that I can have fun and improve my social standing. Or in, in the workplace or in school environments, we're, we're on teams because we need to produce. We need to reflect a better bottom line. And we look at our coworkers and colleagues either as people that need to pr- produce things and or as competitors who are going to bring us down. But if we get wrapped up as people in a functional mentality, treating other people as functions and, and not as people, the question comes to us, are we just ants? Are we base animals or insects? Is that all that we are? Fellow functionalists. Like with, a, with an ant nest. Lot, lot, lots of the worker ants. I was a philosophy major, so I'm very qualified to talk about ants and the science of ants. The, <laughs> if you think about ants in the little ant colony... Uh, you don't have two worker ants side by side with one another, and, and worker ant Bob says to worker uh, ant Joe, Joe, how are you doing really? Let, let's just take a break from carrying this whatever right now that, that we ants carry, and let's just talk. Ants don't do that. But are we better than Ants. The more that we think of each other merely as functionally, the more dehumanized our world becomes. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartrending, in addition to be on the receiving end of somebody treating you functionally. Going back to this Tree of Smoke novel, there is a certain character that that lost his father in World War II and never really knew him, but he's talking to an uncle of his years later. And this uncle says to this now-grown man about his father that he never really knew, your father had honor, he had courage, his uncle said. And if he'd lived long enough, he would have added wisdom to those. If he'd lived, I think he would have gone back to the Midwest and become a businessman. Yes, a good one. A driving wheel in his community. But the son, the character's name is Skip. Yes, yes, Skip wished he could say, but did he love me? Did he love me? So the, the grown son, Skip, has a small window of opportunity to learn about his dad, and he's thinking, I don't care about what he did or what he could have done if he had lived longer. Did he love me? And pre- uh, preachers have said uh, that you don't hear deathbed confessions of people uh, where they say, I wish I could have spent more time at the office. If only I had worked harder. Those aren't the deathbed confessions. It's, I wish I would have invested and given myself more to knowing and being known. Because that's who we are and what we need to be. But the kingdom of God in Jesus has come. And there's now a new world where we have new eyes to look at other people simply that we might serve them and be for them and know them and be known apart from functions. In our marriages, in our communities, in our work, our friends, our family. And by being less functional and more relational with one another, we can make our world a little less loud and a little less sad. 
And, you know, I'm, I'm a sermon giver sometimes. I'm also a sermon listener. Uh, let's, let's, uh, let's be real. This is exactly the type of application that sounds really good in theory, but it's, it's not going to change anything. So, so let's give the encouragement this way. Pick one person. You know, daunting, we can't pick a thousand, but just pick one person that you're over-functionalizing. Maybe it is a spouse. Maybe it's somebody else in this room right now and say, you know what, we're going to step back from what we need to do functionally and we're just going to be for the other. And that'll change our city. And that'll change our world. Finally and most briefly, what, what do I mean by Christian community being relative and not ultimate? It's not just people horizontally all together, people relating to people. Over all of this is God. God is over our community. It's not just point A is all on one axis, the the x-axis, there's the y-axis of God being Lord over all of it. And throughout this very much housekeeping type of passage in Philippians chapter 2, God shows up everywhere. I hope in the Lord Jesus, Paul says. I trust in the Lord. I speak of the interests of Jesus. God had mercy on Epaphroditus. Or in the last verse, Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ. Everywhere, God is at work and woven in. And a very nice little touch here that Paul weaves in the church being united with him when he speaks of Epaphroditus' illness in verse 27. Indeed, he was ill near to death. That phrase, near to death, is the same phrase in the original Greek that Paul uses earlier in Philippians chapter 2 to speak of Jesus when he says that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became near to death. Epaphroditus, near to death, I think, Maybe even subconsciously, Paul is operating out of a conviction that we are like Jesus and Jesus is like us. All in this one family, we're we're spiritually, mystically united to him all together. And what's true of Jesus is true of us. Because Jesus is Lord now in this community. We are not ultimate. Jesus is. And that keeps us humble. Jesus is Lord and we are not. How can community work? Because we're still broken, selfish people. Everybody. Well, when Jesus is Lord, community can work. Because he gives us the resources to forgive and say, you know what, I really messed up. Or I think you're wrong about this, but we can still agree to disagree because loving each other well is more important than winning and being right. And culturally, we don't have to be absolutists when we think about other cultures because we're not, we're not ultimate. And the Bible gives us a wonderful wonderful justification uh, for a just society and I believe a pluralistic one where we can all get along because none of us are ultimate. And when we realize that God is ultimate in our midst, that gives us within our communities a sense of expectancy and excitement that God is going to show up. It's not just us shuffling the Christian chairs on the deck. It is a place where God Almighty truly dwells. And all of life is illuminated when we understand that God is here. This is called to be the human community that has contact with the divine. A human community that has contact with the supra-human. As Jesus came and was the temple where the dwelling of God is with humanity once again, and in his crucifixion and resurrection, pours out his spirit, yes, upon the world, but more, more constitutively upon the church where now this is the temple. God is here. We can live in that. 
And that, relative, and, and, and that brings us down on all of these tensions of, 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 of self and how can we still be ourselves and have our rights in, in this community where, where Jesus says, relax, we can be for the other because we know that Jesus knows our names individually and eternally and deeply, that your names are written upon the heart of Jesus and he knows you so we can be free to be for the other and live lives of, of worship and mercy and also community practicing the presence of Jesus for life and mission. And we want to be on the inner ring, but, but the flip side of that for human beings is that the more we press to be in, the more we feel that we have to tear others down and put them out. It's a closed circle. Jesus says, no, it's not. It's an open circle. I bring you in so that you can go out and include and build community. And we can think, yeah, but I just don't like people. That's the problem with community. We, we, we can be very fancy, but, but the problem with people is people. There, 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 there's this indissoluble peopleness to people that I just don't get and don't like. If not in general, specifically. But Jesus looks at the world and says, I have died for people. And Jesus says, I know more than you do that people just aren't unpleasant, but are radically selfish and sinful and would commit deicide, kill God, kill me, and some did if they could and would. But I love them and die for them anyway. You can be freed, therefore, to practice community with unpleasant people as you find your joy in me. And if you're skeptical about the whole God thing or Jesus thing, maybe there's a vision here within the scriptures of living in a good community again where Jesus is a good, kind Lord. And, and I would want to press you just a little bit to say, I don't think many people would disagree in this day and age and in this cultural moment here in the West where we live uh, and say community is bad, but I'd want to say, what, what are your resources for it? How can you actually do it when it's, it's raining and stormy and windy outside, and you know at a theoretical level that you should be for the other, but you just want to curl up under the blanket by yourself. The Christian resource, or better stated, the Christian person, is Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus' sacrifice for us and call to us for a new community and a new world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Father, we thank you and praise you for this Jesus, for this Christ. Uh, Help us, Lord, to know that Jesus is for us that Jesus truly was for the other. And Father, so can we be. So can we be. Father, thank you for what the cross is for us and the resurrection glory and power of Jesus and his reign over us. Father, help us to be for the other. Help us to treat people as people. Help us to know, Father, that we are not ultimate, but that you are. Uh, Lord, dwell with us now as we practice the community and fellowship of the Lord's table. Uh, We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.